uh, Acts 22, Acts 22. And, and what this is, of course, something very unique, is Paul giving his defense before the multitude. And Paul's talking to them in the Hebrew tongue. Most of them are Hebrews, and so they're listening to him. And he's talking about the fact in his life several things happened, that he was very zealous for the Lord, that he was the one that held the coats as they stoned Stephen. He had some regrets there, but he also talks about the fact on the road to Damascus that he meets the Yeshua HaMashiach that they've been waiting for, the Messiah. And then he talks about a little bit of a transition or a call that God had given to him. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. Now remember, they were paying attention to him, quiet, listening, until this statement right here. In verse 21 of Acts chapter 22, it says, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word. I believe it was that word, Gentiles, because we were looked upon by the Jews as old cur dogs. And they said, and then lifted up their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, now that's a dead giveaway that someone's upset. Get away from them if you ever see that happening. But as they did that, you see, they started to converge upon Paul. So much so, it says, and the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bathed that he should be examined by scourging, that's whipping, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, those leather straps, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, a man over a hundred men, is it lawful, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou Roman? And he said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained of this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. I want to talk for a few minutes on the stewardship of liberty. Heavenly Father, thank you so much now for loving us. And as we bow before you, we pray, God, quiet our minds and our hearts from the hustle and bustle of life. Father, help us, Lord, to look towards eternal and that the aches and pains and burdens and cares of life might just move to the background for a while. Father, as I step back, we pray that you would step forward. Once again, articulate my lips, these stammering lips, as you would say in thy word, and Father, anoint this fallen mind that you would direct it through and by thy Holy Spirit. If fill me with your Holy Spirit, dear God, allow through and by that holy unction, your Holy Ghost, the great comfort to move amongst we, thy people, and help us to have our minds and hearts open unto him. Oh, God. We pray for a miracle today amongst who we are because of who you are. And we'll be very careful to give you all the praise and glory for what you're about to do. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and by the authority that's in his name, Father, we pray, amen. 
So I have a question for us today, and that question is this. Do we really appreciate the liberty that we have? Now you think about it. If you don't work for something, you have to work at appreciating it. Is that not true? Is that not human nature? Now, now why are we here today? We are here today to worship God. But in doing that, what do we remember? We remember what God has done for us if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We remember what God's doing for us and what he promised he will do. Amen? Now, we come here, or should, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. This is not God's morning. This is God's day. And then we come back on Wednesday night for a Bible study and soul winning. But we do all of that not because we're trying to earn our way to heaven, but because we're going there out of thanks to him. Amen? And, and, but here's the thing. If you stop going to church and you stop reading your Bible and you stop praying or you basically lag behind a little bit in those things, what happens? You get cold. You start taking for granted the greatest gift that God has ever offered to mankind. Do we not? And when we grow cold, we really don't appreciate what God has given to us. How many times in the course of a year do we really get together and celebrate the civil liberty that we all share as Americans? Not many. And so what I'm saying is this. What we need to do is work on that as well. <clears throat> Realizing that this morning, most of us didn't contemplate or amuse on the fact that we woke up in a miracle called the United States of America. We shouldn't be here. There's no way that we should have won the war for independence. Strategists have tried to figure it out for over 240 years. How did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It didn't happen by strength. It didn't happen by our military. And it certainly didn't happen by our naval forces because we had none. It happened by Almighty God. Amen. Using a ragtag group of men that were so stirred from their commanders, who many of them were their pastors, who knew God, prayed on their knees, and then ran into battle as their congregations followed them. God showed up. His grace, his mighty power rained down upon battle after battle, and we saw something begin to happen that the whole world stood in astonishment of. How on earth did those colonists ever even get to this point in the war where they're holding their own. You understand the war for independence was eight years and six months. The Second World War was only four years. The war for independence was twice that plus. What I'm saying is we need to realize that God is the reason why we have our country. And the civil liberty that we all cherish is quickly vanishing. And the reason why is because we don't know how to hold on to it because we really don't understand it. At the end of this message with your pastor's permission, I'm going to go through some of the materials. But what I'm saying right now, we're the ones that have the stewardship of liberty. Stewardship means someone puts something in your hand that doesn't even belong to you, really. 
and you are responsible for it, and you need to do something with it because you're going to be accountable. Every one of us will be accountable for what we do in the spiritual liberty that God's given us as born-again believers and taking the gospel and going forward. He's also going to hold us responsible as American citizens living in the greatest nation in modern history. My dad was a World War II veteran. He wanted me to have the things that he didn't have growing up. And so on right about my 16th birthday, he took me to a police auction. And he bought me a 1956 Vitesse Triumph sports car. It was a beautiful look. He bought it for $60. Those days are gone forever. But at this police auction there in Washington, D.C. area, it was a beautiful little sports car. It was in the 60s, so a 56 wasn't too bad. Had a real wood dash four on the floor, six, carbur six uh, cylinders, uh, one carburetor for, two, for each two cylinders. He put cross-tread pearly racing tires. We put a $25 clutch and pressure plate in it. And then he told me, before I turned 16, now, son, I've been driving for 25 years. I've never received one traffic ticket. I want you to match my record. Shouldn't have bought me a sports car. Because the next day I turned 16 and got my license and my first ticket. I was not enjoying my birthday. I knew I had to go home and face the music. My mama said, don't say anything to your daddy until he's eaten his supper. Smart lady, my mama. So dad ate his supper and everyone was supposed to leave. And then I was supposed to approach the matter at hand. Everyone left except for my little sister that wanted to watch the fireworks. So I said, Dad, I don't think I'm going to quite match your driving record. He looked at me. He said, what? And my sister started giggling. And he looked at her joy on her face and the consternation on my face. He was a smart man. He said, what happened, son? I said, I got my first traffic ticket. And it was a silence as if an eternity. And then finally he said, well, he saw the humor in the situation. I guess the pressure's off. And it was. I knew I was to live another day unmaimed. I, I, I was almost wanted to pay my little sister for giggling right on cue. But I want to tell you, I said that to tell you I didn't appreciate that sports car. You know why? Because my dad had given me that sports car, but he didn't make me work for it. And I wasn't saved, and I didn't have the maturity to work at appreciating it. How many times in life do we lose something and then appreciate it? Huh? How many times do we lose a loved one and we say, I wish they were back so I could look into their eyes and tell them one more time, I love you? How many times, even when we start losing our health, we start saying, well, boy, I wish I could do this again or that again. What I'm saying is, let us not start appreciating our civil liberty once we've lost it. Let's work at appreciating it right now and push back the natural and become what God wants us to be, supernatural on all levels, amen? So I have three things that I want to propose to you today as far as the stewardship of liberty so that we can have a greater understanding and from that understanding and appreciation and from that appreciation, a commitment to hold on to it and then tonight tell you exactly how, but right now we need to realize something, that most of us in here don't appreciate the liberty that we have as Americans. I've talked to missionaries 
who have been on foreign fields, who have had to labor under tyrannical governments. They come back to the United States and says, oh, it's just a blessing to be back. I've talked to people that are immigrants. I talked to a fellow in Idaho not too long ago from Russia. He said, you know, I came to America and I came legally and I'm here and I'm getting my but why don't the American people understand that they're losing their liberties? I said, because we're like frogs in that proverbial water and the temperature is being turned up and we're literally going to see our nation boiled to death if we don't do something about it. So three things. Number one, first of all, we must understand the origin of liberty. Where, where does it come from? Well, God says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You get that, right? The Holy Spirit of God. We sing that song, My Country, Tis of Thee, Sweet Land of Liberty. It could actually be entitled, Our Country, God is Because of You. You are the author of liberty. Amen? The only problem is we have ceased to really get to the point where we understand that to the extent that we need to, and we've allowed the natural man to be elected in public office, and the reason why is because God's people aren't voting. Now, look, I'll be the first one to admit there's been a lot of cheating going on. It just didn't happen in 2020. It's been going on for a long time. But you know the difference between 2016 and 2020? 20 million plus Christians didn't vote in 2020 that voted in 2016. 20 million plus. You know why? Because it's like we're resting on our laurels, on our blessed assurances. And as I told the Sunday school class, a lot of people say, well, I just don't want to vote because, you know, it doesn't make a difference anyway. Are you kidding? If Christians voted, there are over 80 million Christians in America that claim they've had a life-changing experience with the gospel of Jesus Christ, read their Bible every day, go to church every week. 80 million plus. That's not counting those that are professing and perhaps not possessing Christians or in a quote-unquote Christian denomination. But what I want to tell you today is, hey, it's time for us to wake up and start voting again. Because if we don't, the natural man, as they are right now, are going to actually be the ones in leadership. And God says this, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him, neither can they know them. What are we talking about? We're talking about this. The natural man is blinded. This is a spiritual warfare. How on earth can anyone ever look at a precious baby and call it a fetus and out of convenience abort it. I'll tell you how. Because they're blind, that's how. I had a blind cousin. His name was Johnny. He was five years older than me. He was 10 and I was five. I can still remember from five years old on my grandmother's porch sitting there with my blind cousin and an unthinking five-year-old tells my cousin Johnny... Isn't the sky blue and the grass is so green? And my cousin Johnny said, what's green? And for the next few minutes, a five-year-old tried to tell a blind 10-year-old what green was. And then I got to a point where I realized I can't put 
anything into words to help him understand what green is because he has no frame of reference from which to begin. Don't ever expect the leftists to apologize. Don't ever expect them to have integrity, decency. The morals that we have, they're blinded. You understand that? They cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is the author of liberty, then they're against liberty. And there's no middle road because the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well right now. And if you're not operating under the spirit of Christ, you're operating under the spirit of the Antichrist. Amen? So what we need to realize is in our nation, every generation in this world has produced enemies of freedom and they've all attacked America because America is, is where freedom rests. This is the land of the free because it's the home of the brave because people have paid for it. It was founded as a Christian nation. It wasn't born out of a patchwork of faith as one of our previous presidents have said. We have a amazing history. By this time, <clears throat> some people think, you know, I, I don't think you're politically correct. I've been told that. I say thank you. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it as a compliment. I take it as one. Because we're about to politically correct ourselves into oblivion. As Christians, we want to be biblically correct. We want to be constitutionally and historically correct. Amen? We don't want to be politically correct. Biblically, constitutionally, historically. That's who we are. And we need to be the ones that set the, well, I get this too. Aren't we supposed to all be joining hands singing kumbaya? Huh? So no. Didn't Jesus come to give peace on earth? Well, let me tell you what Jesus actually said when he was here on earth. From Luke chapter 12 and verse 51. Listen to what the Lord himself said while the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Suppose ye that I have come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. What? Yeah, why? Because light divides from darkness and salt from the putrefaction of sin. That's why it says there was a division among the people because of him, John 7, verse 43. Uh, John 10 and verse 19. There was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. What do you think some of those sayings were? I'll, I'll give you one. From John 14 and verse 6, where the Lord sums it up by very effectively saying, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way. You know what the world says? A lot of different ways. No, there's one way. Amen. He said, I'm not just the way, I'm the truth. Oh, there's truth in the Quran. There's, no, no, no. There's one truth, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? I said his name is Jesus Christ. And the life. And then he said, if you didn't get that, the Lord said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is the premise of our nation, you see. God's people came here to allow the gospel to be propagated throughout this whole area of the world and throughout the entire world. The liberty in Christ Jesus is what our national liberty is based upon. It's not a perfect reflection, but it's a reflection of what the Lord has and what he gives to us. 
So liberty is of God. We have a glorious inheritance, do we not? And every single one of us must honor that glorious inheritance by a special sense of that great leg legacy and be living illustrations of the truth. Be willing and able and ready to give an answer of the hope that lieth within you. Can I get an amen? Okay. What I'm saying is, folks, please listen to me. Number two, liberty must be guarded. Outside of the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., a quote attributed to Wendell Phillips from the 1800s, he said this, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Let me ask you this, have we been vigilant? I don't think so. We've allowed Bible, prayer, and the Ten Commandments to be taken out of our public schools. And now we have transgenders reading nursery rhymes to elementary kids. If that's not out of hell, I don't know what is. We have beta blockers, little elementary kids where their teachers, without their parents' consent, allowing them to decide what sex they're going to be when they can't even decide what kind of clothes they wear. And the reason why? I'll tell you the reason why. The reason why is because we didn't know something as simple as the Constitution of the United States, where the Supreme Court said, oh yeah, uh, we, we, uh, we must take the Bible and Ten Commandments out of public schools. Let me show you something here. I want to get a young person. Uh, let's see, a young person around, around 10. Thank you, brother. How old are you? 10? Hey, how do you? Tell the Lord. Wait, what's your name? What's your name? Ben? Ben, who's 10? Ben, you want to help me? Come on up here. Come on up here, Ben. This is my friend, Ben. My friend, Ben, who's 10? Amen? Okay. Hey, Ben, are you a smart guy? He's, he's humble. He's humble, okay? You're not, you're not nervous, are you? Look at all those people looking at you. Sure you're not nervous? I'm going to show you something here. And, the, and it's going to be simple. Real simple, okay? It's not going to be a trick question. It's going to be so simple that you may not even get it right at first, but just think about what I'm about to tell you, okay? All right? And what this is, this is the Constitution of the United States, okay? Right? This is the highest law in the land. There's no other law but this law in our country. And this law is based upon the Bible, which is the law of the universe, right? Okay, got that so far? If any law tries to put itself above this law, it's just a pretense, pretending to be law, really not law. Follow me so far? Follow me so far? Okay. See what it says here, Article 1, Section 1? It says, all legislative powers, Ben, that means all law-giving powers, here and granted shall be vested or put in a Congress of the United States. Now, don't overthink this. Don't overthink this. So if all law-giving powers are given to the Congress... If all is given to them, how much is left over for the other two? It's all of, it's, if all is given to one, how much is left? Nothing. Let's give them a hand. Here, take that Constitution. Thank you. You can go sit down. Go sit down. Ben, who's 10, just taught us something that most people in the nation don't know, and a lot of people on Capitol Hill don't know. The Supreme Court has no law-giving principles whatsoever. So here's my question to you. How on earth 
1973, did seven out of nine unelected jurists tell us that life doesn't begin at conception but at birth, leading to 62 million babies aborted? How on earth did we allow the Constitution of the United States to be trampled on by the Supreme Court justices when they said it's not constitutional for prayer to be said in public schools or the Bible or the Ten Commandments when this is what our country's based upon? How did we allow that to happen? I'll tell you how. We didn't know what a 10-year-old figured out in a second. That's how. Don't you think we need to start getting educated? Don't you think we need to start understanding our Constitution that has over 20 biblical principles could have saved 62 million lives and could have saved multiplied millions of souls that have been indoctrinated instead of educated and are still being done in our public schools. Now look, I'm, I'm for Christian schools. I used to be the principal of a very large Christian school. You know what they say about principals? We never die, we just lose our faculties. <laughs> so we go crazy, then we do something else, okay? But uh, I'm for that, but what I'm saying is we would have never even needed that had we not known something that my friend Ben just pointed out to us. Are you with me today? Say amen. Look, what took a monumental effort to obtain takes only a careless lack of concern to lose. Say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about when Rome fell, it wasn't large armies mobilizing against her from without. It was the destruction and decay of the Roman people from within. Decline and fall of the Roman Empire, written 1787 by Edward Gibbon. Let me just ask you, if you don't see America reflected what happened all those years ago. Number one, ancient Rome. See if you can see this in America today. In ancient Rome, the rapid increase of divorce, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of human society, increasing obsession with sex. Ancient Rome, see that in America today? Number two, higher and higher taxes and spending of public money for free bread and circuses. For the increasing desire to live off the state. Ancient Rome, see that in America today? You know how I many people on welfare that shouldn't be there? Millions. We need to get them off there and back to work again. Hey, why do you think you go into restaurants there's not enough people to wait on you? I'll tell you why. Because Sleepy Joe in the White House is paying them all kinds of money to stay at home. Guess where he's getting that money? From you and I. So we are giving our money so we can be inconvenienced. Amen? Oh, boy, don't get me started. <laughs> Number three, the mad craze for pleasure. Hello, America. Sports becoming more and more exciting, more brutal enthusiasms, pretending to be creativity, freakishness in the arts. I, I met my wife. She's not with me today. I wish she was. But I met my wife... 48 years ago in art class. We thought we were going to be artists. I was a portrait painter for a while. She was working on a drawing. I walked over and uh, she was 17, I was 20. I walked over and I said, oh, very nice. She said, oh, you like my drawing? I said, I wasn't talking about the drawing. <laughs> okay, young fellows, leave that to the professionals, okay? All right, okay. I mean, for, it worked 47 years later. We're about to have a 48th anniversary. We knew each other a year before we got married. What, what I'm saying is 
We've been to the National Art Gallery. I know which galleries to go into and which ones don't. Uh, I, and there's some beautiful paintings there. But I wandered into a traveling art exhibit one time, and it looked like someone had tripped over buckets of paint, and they splattered on the canvas, and they hung it up. And there were two people talking, and I walked over to see what they were saying about this fiasco hanging on the National Art Gallery's wall. And so one person was a self-proclaimed authority. The other person wanted to know. And so I listened in the conversation. The one person said, well, what's that? And the self-proclaimed authority said, oh, that's a great work of art. Oh. Well, how much is that worth? Oh, well, that's, uh, that's priceless. The other person said, well, what is that entitled? And the self-proclaimed authority said, oh, that is entitled Man's Inner Struggle with Self. And I felt like saying, yes, and he lost right there. Because <laughs> it looked like someone got sick on a canvas and they hung it up. It's garbage. It's humanism in the visual form. Oh, what is it? Oh, it's whatever you think it is. Ah, 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 ah. That's humanism. There is an absolute truth. We find it in our Bible. We are supposed to be living epistles of that absolute truth. Amen. And we have to understand that we have been given the stewardship of liberty and we're the ones that are going to have to hold on to it by understanding, by appreciating, and then contending for it. The right position and the right disposition. We don't go in and beat people over the Bible, excuse me, over the head with the Bible when we go into D.C., but we do go in and we talk to people and give them tracts. What I'm saying is, if we lose our liberty in America, it won't be because a foreign country took over. It'll be because we didn't take earnest heed and we let these things slip. While the good men slept, the enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat, you see. Daniel Webster said this, God grants liberty only to those who love it and are always ready to guard and defend it. Ronald Reagan said it this way, we're always just one generation away from losing our liberty. We don't pass it on through our blood system. It must be protected, preserved, and given to the next generation. As I just gave Ben that constitution. Ben, you'll see George Washington is offering you that quill pen. So you read the, read the constitution, and then in the back, you sign it and be a pledger to hold it up that constitution based upon the Bible. Amen. That's what we need to do. For brethren, you've been called into liberty. Only use not liberty to an occasion to the flesh, but by love, serve one another. Amen, I'm almost done. Everyone okay? Everyone okay? I know it's been a long service, amen. And so I'm going to wrap this up because I know that the heart cannot retain what the posterior cannot endure. More than ever today, we see Americans willing to give up their precious liberties for the perceived safety of government handouts. I'm going to give the government freedom for free stuff. Not a good exchange. Benjamin Franklin said this, quote, they that can give up essential liberty to obtain temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. End quote. Second Peter 2, 18 through 19 says it this way, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. Through much wantonness, America has become wanton, those that were clean escaped from them who live in air. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. 
So we don't want, want to be brought into bondage, do we? Number three and last, true liberty always comes at great personal sacrifice. If someone wants to live free, someone has to be willing to die. John Adams to Abigail, his wife, November 1778, quote, it seems to be the intention of heaven that we should be taught the full value of our liberty by the dearness of the purchase, end quote. What does that mean? That means if, if we want to live, someone else has to be willing to die. And our nation is personified, identified by sacrifice. You understand that, right? Where our people are willing to run into the face of certain death and die. In June, I had the honor of preaching the gospel message for Woody Williams, the last Medal of Honor recipient, still alive from World War II. 473 men were given our highest honor for valor under fire. He was the last one still alive, 98 years old, from West Virginia. Great Christian man, too. And I remember Woody telling me the story of, of how he did what he did and put his life on the line. I, I asked to go, I asked God, Lord, I want to go to Normandy. Woody, his battle was on Iwo Jima. I'll tell you about that tonight if you come back, about the flamethrower that almost got blown up on his back. But, I mean, these men, they basically put their life on the line. I, I went to, uh, to God and said, Lord, I, I want to go to Normandy. I want to see where D-Day happened. I want to see the liberation of Europe from the tyranny of Nazism. Lord, could I go to Normandy? You know how God answers? Exceeding abundantly above. Because my pastor at the time said, hey, Chuck, you, you want to go to Normandy? I said, what? Yes, I do. And I said, thank you, Lord. And, and he said, well, uh, there's an officer in trainings college going over, and I want you to lecture on a portion of D-Day. Exceeding abundantly above. And then when I got on the plane, one of the men, unbeknownst to me when I agreed to go, that sat next to me was a veteran from D-Day. And I thought, thank you, Lord. Amen? Exceeding abundantly above. Well, we flew seven hours from Dulles, Virginia, to Cannes, France. Seven hours through the night, I kept on asking him question after question after question. I knew he was 84 at the time. This was decades ago, and he's gone on into eternity now. But his name was Bill. And uh, I said, Bill, do you need to get some rest? He said, no, you have another question? I said, oh, yeah, are you kidding? I mean, I kept him up all night long. 84 years old. And then the next day, you know, we drove down to Normandy and we had gotten to know each other a little bit. And, and so I approached the subject, not really understanding, but knowing that uh, to a certain extent, these World War II guys don't like to talk about what happened. But we were standing on that beach that we had named Omaha. The bunkers that the Nazis were shooting at our men were still there. Those stanchions, those wrought iron girders that they had put in the sand to keep our heavy equipment going in were still there. Very, very badly rusted, but from the 40s, still there. Beautiful sunny day. I had just been told from a documentary that in the first 15 minutes, 190 of our assault team, our boys, 190 of them died in the first 15 minutes alone. Right there, where I was standing. 
I'm standing next to Bill. You know what it was like? It was like Paul standing next to the chief captain. The chief captain, you know what he said, remember? From Acts 22, with a great sum obtained out of this freedom, you could probably see the scars on the guy's face. Time and time again, the chief captain was saying, I put my life on the line, and Caesar finally gave me my freedom. With a great sum obtained out of this freedom, Paul says I was freeborn. I kind of felt like Paul and the chief captain because I'd never seen anyone in combat. I've never been shot at in combat. So I asked Bill, Bill, I, I've never done anything for my liberty, so I have to work at appreciating it because I've never done anything for it. Could you tell me what it was like that day? And Bill standing next to me, you could see the wheels begin to move. Finally, because we had gotten to know each other, know each other to a certain extent, he said, well, Chuck, and we were looking out into the water, those bunkers behind us, standing next to those stanchions. He says, as far as I could see, sh ships and boats of every size and description. He says, sometimes the sky would be overcast with planes bringing in men and munitions. He said, I didn't get in on D-Day. It was D-Day plus one, probably, because when we got in, on one of those Higgins transport boats. Before we even got to the shore, the bodies of our boys were floating in the water. When the front of that Higgins boat went down, we started stepping off. We saw the bodies of our boys strewn in every imaginable position, their lifeblood ebbing out. We tried to be as respectful as possible, stepping over the bodies of those men, most of them teenagers. 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds, because a lot of them had lied about their age to get into fight. I've talked to those men. And some of them were still alive, they were moaning. So Bill said, we went down and we cradled their head and took our canteen and gave them some life-saving water. Our commander saw what we were doing and came over and very quietly but firmly said, you're gonna have to let these men wait for the next available medic. There were medics, but not enough. Our orders are clear. We are to move in, engage the enemy. This is far from over. As Bill told me that story, I thought to myself, what does it put in the American serviceman's mind to run into certain death, hearing those machine guns going off, and this man sees his buddy that he went through boot camp with, run out, he knows where he's from, his aspirations in life, seen his photographs, mom, dad, maybe sweethearts, maybe wives, maybe children, brothers and sisters. He's his friend now. He helped him get over those walls and underneath that barbed wire during boot camp, and he sees him give his life for a few feet on a beachhead. He runs past him, and he falls a few more feet a friend of his, following him, runs past his still body. And that's done over and over. I said, Lord, what, does, what is it about the American serviceman's mind that, that causes them to do that? And the Lord showed me. He said, we're a Christian nation. And in my word, it says, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Hey, may I tell you? I'm very thankful that I'm free from the tyranny of man. 
But that was just a substitute, or you might say a reflection of the greatest sacrifice in time and eternity where Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his perfect blood for the salvation of our souls. I'm glad that I'm free from the tyranny of man. I'm infinitely more joyful that I'm free from the tyranny of sin, from its penalty, from its power, and one day from its very presence. And I'm gonna do everything I can to spread both of those liberties because death and pain and bloodshed, that's what these two flags stand for. This flag here for our Savior, who has died and bled on the cross, and this flag here, also somewhat in red, for the sacrifice made for you and I. I don't know about you, I need to work at it. I need to ask God to help me to appreciate it, to learn about it, and then to take it and go forward with it, to hold on to our liberty so that these little ones back here that have been challenging me all through the service can grow up in a country that we can still recognize. Man, you two have been loud back here. You know that? You've really been loud. And you, what's his name? Silas. Not silent, Silas, that's for sure. But that's okay because, you see, that's why I'm here for the next generation. And that's why we need to live as well for the next generation, that they can grow up in freedom. And we need to do something about it. You know, the first and foremost thing we can do is get to an old-fashioned altar and ask God to start burning in us once again what patriotism is. There are some of our brethren that say patriotism, that's not spiritual. Patriotism is our faith nationalized. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He also wept over his capital. When was the last time you wept over our capital? The city of blood. What we need to do First and foremost today is understand the stewardship belongs to us. Amen. And you know what God's people need to do? We need to get to an old-fashioned altar and ask God, Lord, help me to do something to understand, appreciate, and then commit to hold on to the liberty that you've entrusted to me as a steward. So I want you to do one thing for me. I'm not going to ask the piano to play. And I know there's some people here that say, well, I don't normally go to the altar. Might be a good time to start. As those men ran towards certain death, could we not walk in humility to an old-fashioned altar? Would you stand and join me today? Would you stand and come with your children? Would you stand and come with your families and say, Lord, I want to come today because, Lord, I want to appreciate liberty. If you'd all stand to allow those that want to come forward, which I think will should be, Every person in this church, if there's any physical way you can come to an old-fashioned altar, if you can't come and, and bow your knee, you can come and bow your head. But let's all stand. Let's all stand.